Mindfulness is this invitation back into the present moment to have a place to come to a place of more ease and well-being where we can connect to ourselves and not get taken away by these ruminations. Do your child's tantrums make you see red? When a child is melting down, their brain and their body are dysregulated. And unfortunately for us, that dysregulation is contagious. But here's the good news. Just like dysregulation is contagious, regulation, our calm nervous system, is contagious too. And sharing this calm, a process called co-regulation, is one of the most effective tools for helping a child move through a tantrum. But in order for co-regulation to work, we have to actually and authentically be calm first. In my brand new workshop, Be the Calm in Your Child's Storm, I'll teach you simple but powerful steps to change the way that your brain and your body interpret your child's dysregulation and arm you with the tools you need to stay cool in the heat of the moment. Head to drsarahbren.com and click the workshops tab to register for this live 60-minute workshop and 30-minute Q&A session. I really hope to see you there. Being present and in the moment is something everyone can benefit from. And that is why I'm so excited to welcome Diana Winston to the podcast today. Diana is the Director of Mindfulness Education at UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. And she's also the author of several books, including The Little Book of Being, Practices and Guidance for Uncovering Your Natural Awareness. In this episode, we'll talk about ways you can practice mindfulness yourself along with simple and practical ways you can introduce it to your children. And make sure to stick around all the way to the end to hear a beautiful, short and sweet guided meditation led by Diana. I promise you're going to want to save this to go back to whenever you need a quick mindful reset. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights, so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hi, I'm so excited to welcome today to the podcast, Diana Winston. Um, thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Yeah. Um, so you you are like deep in the world of mindfulness. Um, you, you wrote a book about it. You teach about it. And um, I would love to hear like a little bit about how you found this work, how you got into it. Yeah, um, after college, I was traveling around in... Asia, in Thailand and India, and I ended up in Dharamsala, India, where the Dalai Lama has uh, the government in exile. And I got interested in, I was involved with an activist organization, and then everybody was doing Buddhist practices and Buddhist meditation and sort of hooked me in at some point. And then I really took a deep dive. After that, I went to Thailand and meditated in a monastery for a while, and then spent the next decade back and forth between the U.S. and Asia meditating and um, doing retreat practices. And at one point, I even lived as a Buddhist nun in a monastery in Myanmar, Burma. Um, So that was kind of like the first, you know, decade after college. And but after a while, ultimately, I got trained to teach it, but I got very interested in how these practices would be beneficial to people no matter what their background. So I didn't, it's lovely to teach it within the Buddhist context, but I'm way more interested in how these can help people in whatever context, in whatever background people have. And so about 15 years ago, plus I started teaching at UCLA, offering these practices in an entirely secular way. That's so interesting because I think, I think that really kind of speaks to how maybe people might perceive mindfulness as it's like, this is a, you know, this is a religious spiritual practice and it's, it's, you have to dedicate your whole life to it versus the way that we can actually kind of secularize it and make it about presence and make it about like a daily 
way of showing up in the world rather than necessarily like leaving our lives to go practice this? Like, how do we integrate it into our life in a way that's like really functional? And that's definitely an approach we take at my center at UCLA and my full awareness research center. It's we're interested in how to bring it into daily life so that we can improve all sorts of things like reduce your stress level and help you deal with your emotions and working with difficult emotions, difficult thoughts, anxiety, depression. And yeah, you absolutely do not have to go to a monastery and do what I did. That was sort of extreme sport version of this. (laughs) (laughs) Mindfulness can be done by anyone at any time. And um, there's really simple ways to do it. I mean, it takes time and effort. It's not just like a a little thing that anyone can pick up, but you need to, so you need to put effort into it, but um, definitely accessible to all. Yeah. And like, I don't, I'm curious because you probably see even more of this than I do in your, in your work with people. Like when I bring up mindfulness to some of my patients, I'll not always, but sometimes I get the eye roll or the groan and the like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, sure. Of course. I know I have to be mindful. But like, I I don't know. Like, I think people think mindfulness is something that maybe it's not. Like, maybe it's this like, I, I get this idea that people have this image in their mind, like mindfulness is a bit all or nothing, right? Like, I have to have this like meditative practice every morning and I have to be sort of the Zen parent to be mindful. Um like I have to sit with candles in the dark and ohm. And I think like, that's wonderful, but that's a very specific type of mindfulness. That's like a meditation practice that is very intentional and specific. And I think when we're, when, when I'm talking about mindfulness, when I think you're talking about mindfulness, we're talking about something kind of different. And I'm curious if you could help like make the distinction for people listening. Yeah. Well, we're actually talking, I'm talking about both. Okay. So, um, so for people, First of all, the people who come to me come to me generally because they want to learn. So I don't get a lot of eye rolls, but from time to time I do, especially (laughs) if we bring it into like children and stuff, then there's a lot of eye rolls. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions out there around like, oh, mindfulness means, you know, like you're saying, sitting in a room with your eyes closed, meditating. And there is an element of mindfulness that's meditation. But let me let me back up a little bit. So the way that I define mindfulness is paying attention to our present moment experiences with openness, curiosity, and a willingness to be with that experience. So this is a quality of attention that can be developed. Most, much of the day, if you check into your mind, and the research shows us that our minds are lost in the past, thinking about things that happened, replaying that, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Or planning for the future, obsessing, worrying, going to the worst case scenario. So mindfulness is this invitation back into the present moment to have a place, to come to a place of more ease and well-being where we can connect to ourselves and not get taken away by these ruminations. So as I talk about it like this, you can start to see that it's that it, it is a quality of attention that we can have at any moment. And that's sort of what you're pointing to. However, or not however, and it's best cultivated through a meditation practice. Because if I were just to say to just anyone off the street, hey, be mindful, they're going to go, well, what do I do? So if you have a meditation practice, then you do it in a regular way and you start to realize like, oh, okay, um, this is how you be mindful. This is how I train my attention. This is how I don't get lost in my thoughts and I come back to the present moment. So that when you're in your home and your kid does something that drives you insane and you're about to yell, you remember to take a pause and a breath and be more Mm -hmm. self-aware or you show up with them in a more full and connected way because you've practiced the skill of being mindful. And then just to say one one last thing I want to add is you don't have to do it for long periods of time. If you're going to meditate, it's not like you have to spend an hour every day. I mean, I start people out with just like five minutes a day because people definitely can find time for five minutes for the most part. Yeah. I think that's super accessible. And it's funny. It makes me think of like, um, it's like going to the gym, you know, and doing a workout. The idea of that workout, hopefully for most people is to get like, you know, to build strength and flexibility and a capacity so that like when you are in the real world, you have more access to these functional movements. Your body is able to do things that you need it to do. And so meditation seems kind of like 
the going to the gym and doing the workout and then that you, so that you can actually live in the world and have access to the mindful capacities in your day-to-day life so that you could be more present in your day-to-day life. Yeah. And that's definitely a good analogy. Very similar. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they're, if you want to get kind of neurological here, you're creating new neural pathways when you are practicing the meditation so that in the heat of the moment, you still have access to these kinds of skills. So even when your stress responses are kicking up, there's these parts of your brain that are saying, hold on, I actually have a new path I can follow in these moments. Absolutely. And there's some interesting research looking at a couple of different things. One, looking at long-term meditators. So these are people who've been you know, meditating for 30 years or something and living in, they're like the Olympic athletes of meditation or something. And they, um, when they look at their brain and compare the brain to a person of the same age range, they find that they're, um, they have more gray matter, like it's thicker in certain areas, particularly the prefrontal cortex, which I'm sure you talk about in your uh, podcast all the time, right? So the prefrontal cortex is thicker than people of the same age range. So when I talk about that study, I say, you know, that's a cool study, but it's, we don't know if their prefrontal cortex was like that before, right? So, so before they started meditating. So another study, a follow-up study looked at novice meditators and saw that some minute thickening began to happen in a similar area for people who'd only done eight weeks of practice. So this is kind of just some of the research around how, uh, around neuroplasticity and how our brains can change and new neural pathways can be created and others pruned. So that's amazing. And I think that's very resonant, especially for parents of young kids, because we talk a lot on this podcast about emotion regulation and the frontal lobes and how if we where that's where all of our executive functions are housed and, you know, things like focus and attention are a part of our executive functioning skills. And so they're all in the frontal lobes. And if we want our kids to be able to learn self-regulation, learn impulse inhibition, learn to problem solve and you know, take turns, have do all these like really higher level things, teaching them things like breathing practices and meditation practices and making, and obviously you've got to get creative when you're doing it with kids. And I'm very curious if you have any strategies to bring this into our children's lives, but like, this is also going to help with the tantrums and it's going to help with the meltdowns and it's going to help with those hot moments for our kids and for us. And we're, we want to develop our frontal prefrontal cortex. We want to create flexibility and a lot of neural connectivity in that space. So that's a, it's so interesting to hear that they're like, they're doing like brain scans to show this is evidence based. Yeah. We're actually about to do a study at UCLA where we're going to look at what's happening in the brain. Like they're going to be meditating in an MRI that that is, believe it or not, has never been done. So we're going to find out, I don't know, it's coming up soon. (laughs) Oh, I'm definitely going to want to read that study. That's so interesting. So, yeah, I guess I am curious, like, okay, I mean, it's tricky to get kids to get interested in this stuff. And the more we push, the more they pull. So what are things that we could do you have strategies for working with younger kids on, on integrating some of these skills? Okay. Well, here's my little, um, <laughs> 10 second version. So when a parent calls me up or emails me and says, my child really needs mindfulness skills. Do you know what my first thought is? <laughs> Guess. You need mindfulness skills. A parent needs mindfulness skills. <laughs> um, so, because it really it starts with us, right? And 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 a lot of mindfulness with children begins with us and what we model, right? Are you a parent that's constantly distracted and on your phone all the time, and the kids playing with you? And I remember my friend was telling me she she was someone who doesn't practice mindfulness and. Um, her, her, I remember her son when he was little started saying, mommy, mommy, get off the phone. You're soft. The phone is hard. <laughs> get off. And so it's like, they know, they know when we're giving them full attention, they know when we're, so, and they know how we handle our emotions, right? So if we're, mm-hmm. you know, if we're constantly feeling anxious or getting angry at them or stuff, and we don't have tools ourselves, that's what they're going to see. That's what we're modeling. So the number one piece, and, you know, we can return to this in a little bit is like, is how do we work with ourselves? How do we work with our own mind developing ways to bring mindfulness, whether it's a formal practice or more informal use of mindfulness and both are good, right? Either way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But in, in terms of like bringing it to kids, so again, I don't ever like to impose on children. And, and you know, there's a big movement to bring it into the schools that's been happening for a number of years. And it, it has, it works to varying degrees. I mean, some kids are really into it and some kids are not. So I never want to impose anything. And, you know, my daughter, I think it's probably because I am a mindfulness teacher that she rebels against it, right? So she definitely <laughs> likes to make fun of me and she pretends to be leading meditations and doing it in funny voices and stuff like that. She's now 12, but when she was little, she used to do that a lot. And, um, but I've been, you know, she's been exposed to it since she was little. And there was a period of time a few years ago where she was like, mommy, I'm having a hard time sleeping. Will you lead me in a meditation? And so Mm -hmm. I would just do some simple body scan, noticing her body, um, and letting her it just drifting off to sleep as I helped relax her body and go through the different body parts. So that's something that, you know, it was exciting when she actually asked for my support. Um, wow. But in terms of littler kids, there's a lot of different resources for if you want to bring mindfulness to kids, again, like making it playful, a game like so there's a woman named Susan Kaiser Greenland, who wrote the book, The Mindful Child. And she has a, a, a book, a, like a card deck called Mindful Games. And it has, um, it has wonderful little games that you can pull out, you know, like, like, let's be a mountain and let's sit here. Let's, you know, so with little kids, these kinds of things work, I think with like games and, um, there's another little renegades is another great resource, which is also, it's a card, also another card deck with wonderful stuff for even littler kids, like three, four age range. So Mm -hmm. my suggestion is really is to bring it in, in playful ways, but you need to know what you're doing yourself because it's hard to teach anybody anything if you don't really know it. So just like having this abstract idea, I'm going to teach my kid mindfulness without you doing it. It's not really going to go over. Yeah. I actually think that that really hits home for me. The idea of like, as parents, we have to understand the why and the how underneath something first. And like, I see this come up a lot with like script, like parenting scripts, like what to say to your child in this moment or what to do in this moment. And it's like, okay, yeah, you could start there. But if you just reiterate the script um, and you don't understand what the function of it is, it's hard to, to really have it land um, or for it to be as effective as it possibly could be. So I like this idea too, of like, if you want to teach your kids mindfulness, like you, you got to kind of familiarize yourself with the concepts and the, and the functions of it first so that you can then answer questions when they come up or troubleshoot when they come up. So you're not just like stuck with a very narrow way you can present it, but you can be flexible and kind of move with them as they explore with it. Exactly. Exactly. The scripts, I mean, the scripts can be helpful, but you need to have some experience yourself or it's just artificial. Yeah. Yeah. I often tell parents and I'm, I don't know what you think about this, but I, I often say like find moments that you're already doing something this is for them to like start to learn, introduce if they've never tried mindfulness, anything and like find something you already always do, like brushing your teeth or washing the dishes and commit to like doing that fully present as just a practice. So I often start with toothbrushing because you do it in the morning, you do it at night. It's just something that you, most people do mindlessly and they they always do it. So I'm like, can you brush your teeth mindfully? Can you notice the smell of the toothpaste? Can you taste the mint? Can you feel the bubbles in your mouth? Can you hear that sound of the scratching of the toothbrush? Can you just be fully present in this moment, noticing all five senses? And it's like a nice intro to, it's like, you're already brushing your teeth and like, why not just add in the mindful piece? Yeah, that's a great, a great technique and really helpful for people. And, um, and I want to add a little piece to it, which is that mm-hmm. when you're doing it, what typically happens is you're mindful of the taste and the smell and all that for a few seconds. And then something happens, you start thinking about something else and there's nothing wrong. I think that's one of the reasons people get very, um, worried about, I'm not doing mindfulness right because my mind is thinking about other things. So when that happens, it's not a problem. You just redirect your attention back to those sensations that you were describing, Sarah. So, so that there's like, 
so that it's it's this constant movement away and back that actually builds the muscle. If we want to go back to the gym analogy, it's not that we're all perfect and we can be present fully with our toothbrushing for two minutes, not like anybody does it for two minutes, but anyway, for the two minutes you're supposed to be doing, right? Our minds will wander off, but that's fine. Then just bring it back. And that's cultivating the skill of mindfulness. Yes. I love that. That's another, that you, that's such a good point. Cause I think people do get frustrated and they say, I, my mind is wandering and therefore I can't do this. But yes, that, and that, the way you define mindfulness at the beginning of this episode, I love that where it was like, I forget your words exactly, but it was something along the lines of like, it's an invitation to, to return to the moment. Like there is an act of leaving and coming in mindfulness. You just, it's about noticing it and coming back. That's right. Yeah. So, so let's just take a moment to talk about the, like a basic mindfulness practice and how this operates. Right. So usually people begin by noticing their breathing. Right. So that's like the, you know, that's probably the stereotype that's out there. We pay attention to our breathing. And what that means is it's not like we think about our breathing or we look down at our breathing or something, but we feel our breathing and, and you might feel your breathing in your abdomen as it rises and falls in your chest area or in your nose. Right. Those are the typical places people feel their breath. So you do that for a few seconds and you're with that. And then what happens, as I was describing before, is your mind starts thinking about something else. And then in that moment, there'll be a moment where you catch it, that you realize, oh, I'm thinking you can even say a word like thinking very softly in your mind and then come back to where you were noticing your breath, back to your abdomen, for instance. And you just keep doing that for five minutes, let's say. And that's what starts to build the skill set, right? That's what can create the new neural pathways over time. We're just doing this thing. We're training our attention to return to the present moment so that then we can do it when we're toothbrushing or you can practice it when you're toothbrushing. It'll even enhance your meditation, right? Because you're practicing this skill of returning to the present moment. It's not about having a mind that goes blank. It's not about a mind that never wanders. That is like unrealistic. That's not what happens to anybody's mind. Everybody's mind wanders, but it's the act of returning that gives us the, the, um, that builds the skill. And then over time it gets easier and that's, what's cool. You're suddenly, Oh, I can be present for more than one breath. I can be present for five breaths for 10 breaths. How cool Mm -hmm. is that? That's interesting too, that like, it makes sense that it's the frontal lobes that seem to be getting kind of exercised or like you're seeing more gray matter in that area, because that's the part of the brain that does that function that returns like that's where focus lives that's where noticing and returning actually live in our brain like why people who have ADHD struggle with executive functioning tasks it's all in the frontal lobe so it's very interesting that meditation seems like um meditation and mindfulness seems like a counterbalance to some of our maybe our biological deficits in attention if you have a neurodiverse brain or some of our learned deficits in attention if we are you know we live in a society where we have been sort of trained to be distracted with our phones and with you know the constant barrage of of sensory input that happens with us so much these days like we've our brains have been trained to like switch focus constantly so this idea of coming back and staying still for a minute we sometimes have to relearn that yeah, absolutely. I think that's really well said. And um, I think some people call it like continuous partial attention, right? Um, mm-hmm. There's. The, I want to bring up two things, some studies that we've done at UCLA looking at and, and by the way, the, the mindfulness field of research is, is big. I mean, it's being done all around the world and there's probably six, 7,000 studies out there right now, which sounds like a lot and is actually not a lot. <laughs> there's a lot more to do. But, um, but one of the studies we did was with ADHD. That was actually the first one I was hired for at UCLA. We, um, we, and we did it not with little kids, but with adolescents and, and adults. And we, this thing, exactly what you're talking about, like, how do we build attention? How, we're, like we're told our whole life, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. But nobody, nobody teaches us how to pay attention, right? Mm-hmm. And and so mindfulness is a training. One of the things about it, it's not the only thing, but it's a training in attention that that 
can benefit people, whether you have ADHD or just, you know, neurotypical brains. But um, the study that we did was interesting because we we taught an eight-week protocol to these adolescents and these adults. And what we found was that conflict attention improves significantly. So there's different types of attention, right? But conflict attention is when you're trying to focus on one thing and your attention is being grabbed by many, many things. So if you have ADD, that's like, it's really hard. Um, Conflict attention improves significantly over the course of going through this protocol. So it's like they learned how when they're distracted to redirect and come back, all the things that we're talking about. Um, And this has implications for children, right? So children like who are sitting at school and they're trying to focus on the teacher, but there's, if you have an ADD brain, there's like so much going on, right? And it's hard to stay focused, but we can, we can teach them how to. And then, and, and then this other study we did with little, littler kids, I think it was, I can't remember, second, third grade or something. And what we found out was that the kids who were, more severely dysregulated benefited more from the mindfulness training. Like the kids who already had a capacity Mm -hmm. to come back to the moment who weren't like, you know, that wasn't a struggle for them. There wasn't a lot of change, but the kids who were, they, it, it it did change significantly because they learned this skill. It's my, is my conjecture anyway. Yeah. It's almost like if you have like an, going back to that exercise model, if you're already a pretty fit athlete and you try a new class, you're not going to necessarily get sore the next day. Like it didn't necessarily train any new, like stretch any new muscle groups. But if you are, haven't worked out in like three months and you go into this class um, or you've never worked out and the, all your muscles are a bit atrophied and you go to this class, you're going to be really sore the next day, which means it was hitting those muscle groups. So I want like, if that, does that kind yeah, of Yeah, absolutely. Your- and I love this analogy, which uh, you're taking it. Sometimes we talk about this being like, it's like working out your mind, like your mind going to the gym or something, mm-hmm. but you're taking it to whole new levels. I'm going to have to steal it and use it when I teach beginners. Take it. <laughs> yes, take it. I, I love metaphor. I feel like it makes it just so much easier to grasp things. I talk in a lot of metaphor mm-hmm. and I'm always kind of, I think I just visualize things. Like I see things in my head as pictures. And so I just think metaphors are so much easier to understand. But, you know, you were talking about ADHD, but then my mind went to anxiety, which is another sort of, you know, cognitive, when anxiety is felt in the body, obviously, but there's a cognitive element to anxiety too, a thinking element to anxiety. We know that kids and grownups who have anxiety get feel distracted. There's kind of like, if you look at a Venn diagram between ADHD and anxiety, there's some overlap in the symptoms specifically around restlessness, irritability, distraction, because kids who, kids and grownups who have anxiety, their mind gets flooded with lots of thoughts, lots of worries. And it's hard to turn all that noise off. And when you have your brain full of worries, it's hard to pay attention to what's happening in the present moment. So I'm curious how mindfulness plays into that. Um, There's a lot of really helpful research around mindfulness and anxiety. It's one of the most robust areas of the research. And um, I'll say a little bit about like what that looks like or how one might use mindfulness. Um, and, And I think in the ADHD study, um, anxiety symptoms went down as people learned these tools for working with it. So, so a lot of people think, okay, mindfulness is just about paying attention and reducing stress and going into a peaceful state or something like that, which it, it, that's an element of it. But there's a lot of ways the tool can be used to help us with emotional regulation and, um, working with difficult emotions. So with anxiety, um, Well, part of it is something I talked about earlier. So part of it is those thoughts that kind of like, like what I, what I like to tell students is like, we get on a train and then the thoughts just go and go and go. And the next thing you know, you're like 20 miles down the track in this thought, oh no, my kid isn't doing well in school. What does that mean? Oh, maybe they'll, they'll never get into a good college and then they're going to fail out and right. And then it's like, you're 20 miles down the track. So with mindfulness, we can learn to get off the train. Like, oh, wait a minute, I'm on a train. How interesting. And we can get off that train. And then with even more practice, we can learn to stay at the platform and not even get on the train in the first place. Like there's that Mm. scary thought. Okay, it's just a thought. It's coming and going. I often tell um, people to like, just don't believe everything you think. 
That's a bumper sticker. It's a good bumper sticker. I've seen it a lot, right? But we have all these thoughts that can be very distorted. And so how do we, how do we learn to say, okay, there's the thought, there's a fearful thought, there's an anxiety producing thought. And another analogy is like, it's like a snowball, right? When we start with a little tiny bit of snow, there's a, just a slight thought, and then it starts to pick up steam and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it's this giant, massive snowball. So we want to, you want, so one way of working with anxiety is working on not getting on the train or getting off the train when we're on it. Mm-hmm. The second way is working with what you, you were saying. It was, it's also felt in the body. So what do we do? How do we notice what's happening in our bodies in real time in a way that doesn't overwhelm us, but just gives us a little space so we start to have a bit of like ease, even in the midst of the anxiety. So we train people who are practicing mindfulness to notice when you're having an emotion, what am I feeling in my body? My heart is racing, my stomach is clenched, my jaw is tight. And by doing that, in combination with noticing the thoughts, you know, as well, we start to bring more awareness and a little bit of kindness to ourselves. So we always practice, we, we, we practice positive emotions practices as well, especially when we're feeling anxious. And that can be something like just putting your hand on your chest just to, oh, okay. I'll be okay. I'll get through this. It could be there's a, a an actual practice where we cultivate kindness, but it's this combination of this kind awareness that we bring to the present moment experience that can allow us to have a little bit of space or what we call non-identification or disidentification. I don't know if that's something you talk about here in the podcast, but mm. shall I say more about it or do? Oh no, yes, I've actually never heard that term before. So please. Um, yeah. And so, so disidentification, when we're identified with an emotion, um, we're lost in it, we're caught in it. Oh, you know, I'm so upset about my kid, or I'm so nervous about this, or I'm so like, we're so in it. Disidentification is when we move from it being my emotion that I'm lost in to the emotion that's moving through me. And as we start to break it into the component parts and we say like, okay, it's a, it's a clenched stomach, a tight jaw, a set of thoughts, we start to realize that it's not so personal. It's just things. It's like weather patterns moving through us. And we can actually begin to have a little bit more space. Like, okay, it's not this horrible thing. It's just happening and I can be aware of it and I can have a little bit of space. So that's what disidentification is. It's, a, it's sort of an advanced concept in mindfulness, but once you get it, it's really can help a lot. Yeah. And I think that that non-judgmental stance, that self-compassionate stance is really important in that because when we judge or we fight ourselves, we it, everything gets really sticky. So it's kind of hard to like separate out and look at it objectively. That's right. So it's, so we use an acronym and the acronym is RAIN and it stands for R is recognize. Like, what am I feeling? Oh, I'm feeling anxious. A allow. And that's what you're pointing to. Like, can I just let myself have the feeling from the perspective of mindfulness? It's just a feeling moving through us. It's, it's not a problem. Any, any emotion is okay. What we do with it is another story, but right. So allow, so that non-judgmental stance, I is investigate. That's what I was talking about earlier. What am I feeling in my body right now? My heart's racing. My stomach is clenched. Oh, there are these thoughts happening. And then the N, we use two different ones. It could be non-identify, what we were talking about, or um, nurture, meaning bring some kindness to yourself. So that's an acronym we teach in the mindfulness world. I love that. I think that's really, really helpful because it's it's simple. Yeah, I think not easy. Exactly. That's also true. <laughs> yeah. It makes me think too, and I know we're kind of jumping all over with like ADHD and anxiety, but it also makes me think of trauma. And I, you know, I think when I, when I think of self-compassion, when I think about noticing a feeling and feeling like this can be safe, I always kind of in the back of my head, I'm like, the trauma makes that really hard. Um, and oftentimes if, I'm not even talking about like capital T trauma, like one big, really scary thing happened to us. But a lot of times, especially in parenting, I think our, our like childhood stuff comes out. Um, we hear, uh, you know, if you've had a really critical parent or a parent who is really emotionally misattuned to you, um, or you 
felt a lot of shame as a kid or fear as a kid. Sitting with these emotions, we oftentimes, the voices in our mind that we've internalized from our caregivers of our past um, aren't compassionate about our emotions. They do say, stop that. You want something to cry about? I'll give you something to cry about. Or nobody wants to hear this. Like, shut up. And like that makes the idea of a mindfulness practice for a lot of people really kind of terrifying because they have to sit and hear that internal dialogue. And so they don't want to. Um, so I wonder if you have what you do when that stuff comes up for people that you're working with. Cause I, I can't imagine that it's easy for everybody to sit with their thoughts and their physical body. Yeah. There's, um, there's a lot of, uh, interface these days around the trauma, trauma work that's being done in the mindfulness field. And there's some books written like the book called trauma sensitive mindfulness by David Trevelin. And there's, um, Mindfulness is, let's see, there's a lot I can say. I'll just sort of hone it down. Um, it's mindfulness can be challenging for people who've had trauma and there are ways of modifying it to keep it really simple so that people can still access it and the benefits of it without reactivating the trauma. So for instance, um, I, I said, you know, we typically we do noticing our breathing as a good starting point. But for people, some people with trauma, that's really intense to do that. So there's other things. They could notice the sounds around them. They could notice their feet on the floor. They can do it for short periods of time because there's actually a lot of healing that can happen if we are willing to, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately, ultimately you got to go through it, right? Like you can't just mm-hmm. keep avoiding, avoiding, avoiding. It doesn't go away or something. So, but we can learn Mm -hmm. to do it in a very, very gentle and what's sometimes called like titrated way. So it's just like a little bit of noticing something and then coming back. So we find one of the ways that we work with people with trauma who are having, and and I agree with you, not, it doesn't have to be trauma with a capital T. It can be all kinds of trauma, um, is we find something that's pleasurable or at ease in our body, such as like, or just even neutral, like our feet. Okay. So feeling our feet on the ground, noticing how that feels and then sensing what's happening in our body just for like two seconds and then going back Mm -hmm. to where it's easy. So it's, it's, it's very like slow and gentle. And for some people, mindfulness, like sitting in meditation doesn't work. And that's when those activities that you were talking about, like mindfully brushing your teeth or there's a walking meditation or things, those may be more supportive to people who are, who it's hard to go in. But what I've found is with it, it helps to also have a teacher or some support. So it's, so you're not just doing this randomly on your own. Um, but with a skillful teacher or therapist who knows about this, you absolutely can use mindfulness, um, you know, within the context of trauma. Yes. I mean, I think it's almost part of the treatment for trauma. I just, I think I want to normalize for people who've experienced trauma that at first it can be really hard. And then the idea is with help, it actually can become the tool by which, one of the tools by which healing happens because we relearn how to be in our body and in our mind and have it feel safe. But that's that I do think if that's been your experience, having someone to help you with that process to learn that safety is very important. Um, But I don't want people who think I could never do this because every time I do this, it's just too overwhelming and it's too painful to think that they could never do it. I just think you need more support to get there. And in fact, it might be the thing that helps you actually heal from the trauma itself. Yeah, I completely agree. And, um, and like I said, small, if you're, if you're drawn to it, but it feels overwhelming, do it for three, three minutes or even 10 seconds or something and see what that's like and take it slow. And there's lots of, you know, guided meditations, like for instance, in our UCLA mindful app, we have a three minute meditation where you just very, very gently notice what's happening. And those kinds of things can be supportive. Ooh, can you tell us about this app? I would love to share that resource with this audience. Um, yeah, we have an app called UCLA Mindful, and it's purely edu- it's free and it's purely educational. And on it, it has um, it has uh, 
a bunch of core meditations that we call like our kind of basic meditations. And the meditations are actually in 14 different languages. So we have like um, some meditations that are meant for kind of like wellness. And then we have a, a weekly it, we call it a podcast. It's not like this, but it's just a new meditation is po is posted every few days. So we have at least once a week, a new 30 minute meditation, but the basic meditations have little, you know, like short things anywhere from three minutes to 30 minutes. And there's one for sleep on there, which I sometimes play for my daughter. So, and they're, they are for adults, but I do know a lot of families have told me that they've done them with their kids. So it, it can be both. And that's also that's on our really. website as well, if you would prefer like a web interface. Yeah. Okay. I'll put links to both of those in our show notes so people can find them. That's amazing that you have it in so many languages. That makes it so accessible. That was our vision. Yeah. It got yeah. put on the California, um, like COVID response website and we collaborated with them to make it. They were the one that requested it. Can you make it in 14 different languages? So, okay. Right. Sure. We'll just bang that out for you. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but that's amazing. Yes. No, it's, I mean, like this is, this is a really important resource that like, if we can make it more mainstream and more accessible, we're going to raise a healthier society. So it's worth it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <sighs> Well, thank you so much. I mean, I could literally ask you a billion more questions about this stuff. Um, but I feel like, you know, I, I would love if there's, I mean, we talked about a lot of very concrete strategies on here, but I'm wondering if you have any like quick takeaways that you could, like if someone's listening to this podcast and they're like, okay, I want to try something today. I want to give this a go. Like where's a place that a parent could start for themselves or could start as like a way to bring in a child into the practice? Um, okay, well, let me let me give you something that could be done really quickly that accesses mindfulness that anyone can do, parent or kid. Um, this is a practice called STOP. And so it's, it's, it's kind of based on the idea that being mindful is not so hard, but remembering to be mindful is hard. So there's this acronym and it stands for STOP, take a breath, observe and proceed. So let's say you're a parent and you're just, you suddenly realize that you're very stressed out for whatever reason. You're anxious, you're angry, you're about to yell, you're about to lose it, or you just want to be mindful. Then you can remember to stop. So you would stop and take a breath and you can do it with your eyes open or closed and then observe what's happening inside me. Okay. My heart's racing. I feel tightness in my hands take another breath or two. And then as we do this and we proceed, we can proceed with more awareness, more consciousness, a little bit more calm down. So this stop practice can be done at any time. And it usually takes, you know, six, seven seconds or something just to bring mindfulness into the moment. And, and really that's my encouragement for parents. Like, you know, my ideal encouragement is if you're interested in it, take a, um, you know, start, you can start with, with apps. There's of course, not just our app, but there's many apps out there. You can take a class or there's a lot online these days. We have a lot through our center as well, our maps classes, which stands for mindful awareness practices classes, but many other things out there and develop a daily practice if you want to. And that will support you in bringing it into your life. And so, but, but if you're like, Oh, that feels a little too much for me, try the stop practice and see what happens. And, um, uh, so that's for adults. Um, for kids, I would say they can also do stop and kid, it's taught in schools a lot with the kids and also with the teachers and the teachers. Sometimes you, I, my daughter's teacher, I taught it to their classroom. My daughter's teacher was like sitting there going, stop, stop. <laughs> she was, saying, she was saying, there's another, a, a little, a sweet one for um, kids. You, um, it's called starfish where you hold up their, they hold up their hand and they just, they bring their finger around their pinky and down the other side of the pinky and then up the ring finger and down the other side. And as you do it, you bring your breath along with it. So it's like a in, out, in, out. And you go through all five fingers. And that's just like a little on the spot thing that kids can do when they're feeling like anxious or upset. So if we can get our kids to do it, if we're doing it too, be, um, might work. 
Yeah, actually. So it's really funny that you brought up that exercise because I've, I've heard of it called five finger breathing and I do it with my kids and the way that I do it with them is I have them drive my breathing first. So I'll have them trace my hand and as they trace my fingers, they get to like make me breathe in and make me breathe out. And, and that's how like, it's like fun and they get to be in control and then I do it with them. And it's like a fun game that we play just, you know, when we're waiting for something or we're like, I just pull, it's like a game, um, that we play but I didn't know I've heard, I've heard it called starfish and I love that. It's much better than five finger breathing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love your creativity around it. That's awesome. Yeah. I think that whenever we can get kids to feel like they have some agency and control and like they, they, they get more excited and interested in it. Like, okay, can you make mommy breathe? Like how can you, can you drive my breathing for a little bit? Can you be in charge? And then like, that's like, kids are going to say yes, much more likely to say yes to that. Like, I want to make you breathe. I want to like control you a little bit. That's very fun for them. And then we can turn it around and, you know, play with their breath. And, um, but I, yeah, I think like I was saying before, like when we push, they pull away, you know, like we, when we say like, you know, and I catch myself doing this too, but like when our kids, my kids are really upset, I'm like, take a breath. But mm-hmm. I, I have to remind myself that nobody likes to be told to take a breath when they're upset. You got it. Like, those are the things we got to teach them in the cool, calm, connected moments so that they can just kind of, they can find that on their own when they're upset. When I was, um, my daughter was little, she was like, I want to say around three or about, um, we had gone into a supermarket and the line was really long and then the cashier or something wasn't working. And I was just getting more and more and more frustrated. And I, um, we got back in the car and I just started ranting, like, I cannot believe how slow that place is. I'm so angry about that. This little voice from back in the car seat in the back goes, breathe, mommy. (laughs) (laughs) So they can do it to us too. And like I said, we need it. We need it probably more than they do, just to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, parenting's hard. We definitely have stress. And so anything that's going to reduce stress, I'm all about. (sighs) Yeah. I hope this felt relaxing to people listening to it. Um, Well, that that was my last thought. Would you like me to lead a little bit of a meditation for people? Yes, that would be amazing. Just do three minutes or something. So yes, I could use it myself right now. Okay, so we'll just, um, we'll just do a very short meditation. And I know nobody has any time. So this is the, this is a very short version. So just wherever you are, unless you're driving, you can, you can close your eyes, but not if you're driving. Um, Sit in a way that's comfortable to you. Any posture is absolutely fine. And even if you're, sometimes people listen to podcasts while they're walking, so you can even still do it just again, not closing your eyes. Let's take a deep breath. And as you take a deep breath, allowing your yourself to settle a little bit, to invite in the possibility of ease and relaxation. And then notice your body. What's obvious to you? Are you seated? Can you feel the weight of your body on the chair? Maybe you feel your feet on the floor. Notice your hands. Are there areas of tension? You can just soften a little bit. And notice if there's maybe you're standing or moving and there's your body moving through space. What do you notice in your body right here and now? See if you can let whatever is here be here. Taking another breath. And then turning your attention to your emotions. How am I feeling right now? Am I feeling happy? Am I feeling anxious? Am I feeling nothing in particular, but what's happening? What do you notice inside yourself right in this moment? Again, letting whatever is here be here. Mindfulness has this element of this willingness to be with what is. 
And you notice your mind, is my mind thinking about what I have to make for dinner or my right here, my present? Does my mind feel alert, sleepy, cautious? What's happening if I just check my mind? And take another breath and see if you can allow this full experience of being human Just let yourself be here. And finally, bringing in that end, that nurture we talked about, the kindness. Is there some way way for you to appreciate yourself for all that you do? I think as parents, we just take everything for granted and take ourselves for granted. So just to offer yourself a little appreciation, it is a hard job. It's a hard job and you are doing great way better than you think you are doing. And then when you're ready, we can end this meditation or open our eyes if they're closed. That was really helpful for me. I needed to hear that today. Oh, good. That's great. Yeah. Well, I think we should let people take this energy with them. So we'll say goodbye and see you next week. Great. Thank you so much for being here, Diana. You're welcome. Great to talk to you. Lots of fun. Mindfulness is a great tool for emotion regulation. But do you know the first and maybe most important step in helping our children work through their big feelings? It all starts with us. Learning how to self-regulate and process our own dysregulation will allow us to better help our children navigate those overwhelming feelings themselves. And that's what I'll address in my new workshop, Be the Calm in Your Child's Storm, How to Keep Your Cool When Your Child Loses Theirs. In this workshop, I'll help you learn how to process your unique triggers and arm you with the tools you need to stay cool in the heat of the moment so you can be the soothing presence your child needs most. Plus, I've left plenty of time at the end for you to get a chance to ask your questions. Head to drsarahbren.com and click the workshops tab to register for this live 60-minute workshop and 30-minute Q&A session. And make sure to register before April 19th to get early bird pricing and save 25%. So thanks for listening, and until next week, don't be a stranger.